This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It's the second week of July, and this week, even Republican governors around much of the country are imposing mandatory mask orders as the coronavirus situation continues to intensify, especially in the South and Southwest. The rapid growth in consumer spending that ran from April into mid-June has stalled. Americans tell pollsters they're more worried about the coronavirus, and they appear to be taking steps to stay in and slow its spread, even in areas like the Northeast, where the resurgence does not yet look too bad. The president's strategy of just trying to plow through, demanding that schools reopen or else, is not carrying the day either in the polling or in public actions. But people also are wondering how long we're going to have to go on like this. European countries are reopening their schools, and Americans would like to do that here in the fall, but it's likely to be impractical if these outbreaks remain so out of control, and hundreds of Americans continue to die every day. To talk about where to go from here, I want to bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center. I'm joined by Megan McArdle, columnist of the Washington Post on the right. And on the left, Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. Hello. Hi there. Hi. And to talk about the coronavirus, Dr. Kavita Patel joins us now. Kavita is a primary care internist, a former health policy advisor in the Obama administration, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Hello, Kavita. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. So why have things gotten so much worse in the last month? So I will say that we have a national virus without a national strategy. That's probably the most polite, succinct way to say it. But going into a little bit more depth around that, we really did have these metrics, which many states and cities did not adhere to in terms of reopening. For example, there were already growth rates in parts of the country, California, Texas, and Florida, where we should have been rolling back some of the reopenings, particularly in bars and restaurants. Second has been something that's been a theme for months now is testing. We have we still to this date, even though we are doing about 550,000 to 600,000 tests a day, number one, that's not enough. Number two, testing is pretty limited when it t- can take anywhere from five to 14 days to get results. And then the third has been uh, an unclear politicization of science. Uh, It's something I've seen in my career, starting with uh, issues around HIV and climate change, and it seems to be continuing. But again, in the face of an international pandemic, has really kind of brought us to where we are today. People have put sort of a red state, blue state frame on the responses to this. But as you note, California is one of the states that has faced a significant resurgence, not quite as bad as in Arizona or Florida. So is is, is it really mostly about policy differences? There was a predictability about this, Josh, and and certainly we saw kind of coastal or at least major transport hubs being affected earlier. That's why you had kind of the New York, D.C. area and uh, coastal Northwest, as well as L.A., San Francisco. San Francisco is actually an outlier because they took some drastic actions early. But you did see this kind of phenomenon on the coast, so to speak. And we knew that it was just a matter of time. Candidly, it was unclear in talking with my colleagues was this going to be weeks or months? It was just not, we were not certain how this pattern of virus would kind of go through the country as we started to lift some of the restrictions, particularly around travel. Remember, March is really when stay-at-home orders nationally were, were imposed, and that resulted in a decrease everywhere, even in states where there were few cases, those cases pretty much dropped down to zero. So this was inevitable. Many of us in public health kind of knew that this would kind of come through the country, not knowing the time intervals. But then to your point, Josh, yes, it did not help that we were doing this reopening right as we were hitting summer 
people were frustrated being indoors. And the most kind of obvious way to get out of your home, particularly for young people, were to go into these settings, bars, clubs, restaurants, small gatherings. Uh, at some point, you know, the protests, I think, threw a wrench into this. People thought that might create an increase in cases and mobility data and other kind of numbers that we see do not support that. And here's the, here's what I, I, I always feel like I'm the arbiter of a kind of gloom and doom on some of these kind of think, thinkings and podcasts. But I will tell you, I'm worried now that we will just see this travel migration pattern, which is incredibly natural, people coming back from Florida up to the Northeast. And that's why you see states like New York imposing pretty strict quarantines around uh incoming travelers, which are hard to enforce, but we're already seeing cases rising in the D.C. area where I live, for example, which tell me that unless we have, again, a national strategy, we are going to continue to have a national problem showing up in regions only separated by time. I mean, I think that that is what I have been saying is that you are only as safe as the safest state. And that's something that I, I mean, I think we should say that this is a, without in any way excusing Donald Trump's ridiculous politicization of everything, including very minimal stuff like wearing masks. Um, I think there's a danger of, of that on both sides. So I see blue staters now who are like, well, this is just all about Georgia reopening or, or Texas reopening. And look, I I was against them reopening, but I also recognize politically it was incredibly difficult to stay shut down when they didn't have a big problem. Basically, everyone has shut down in response to having a big local problem. And the danger that I see now is that I see people in the Northeast going out, not wearing masks, not doing all of that stuff. More and more, they're socializing with groups. Um, and the problem is that they're assuming that somehow now we don't have a problem and it's just those bad red states. It's not. It's going to come back here. It's going to get into your community, too. Um, and I think that that is is we we absolutely do need to pull together as a nation. Um, but I'm afraid I, I don't see either side very interested in that. Both sides are kind of really locked into their own narratives about how bad things happen to the other people because they're bad and good things happen to me because I'm good. I don't think I agree with that. I mean, some of the change that, as as you know, the, there's this opportunity insights data from Harvard University and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that tracks on a day to day basis consumer spending, and we've seen the pullback in the last month, not just in states that have been hit hard like Texas and Florida, but also in in New York and other places in the Northeast where the virus situation looks relatively good. We've also seen some policy changes. New York was going to reopen restaurants for indoor dining. They saw what was happening around the country and they decided not to do that. So I think that I think that what we're seeing happening in part of the country is creating some increased caution around all of the country. I think that people's comments about the coronavirus have often been more politicized than their actual actions. Dorian, what's your thinking? Well, I mean, I think this week has just been um, really hard to, uh, to assess, right? We had Dr. Fauci being attacked by people in the administration, um, and now we're in the midst of actual conflicts and fights, particularly in red states. So I'm thinking of uh, Gov- Georgia Governor Kemp fighting with Atlanta Mayor Lance Bottoms of Atlanta around her mandate for residents to wear masks, which um, seems like that's the that's the fight you want to have um, when people are dying. So so it's just like a bewildering week. I guess I do have a question, though, for Dr. Patel, and that is, can you help us make sense? Um, you, you spoke about metrics and the politicization of science. Can you help us make sense of the significance of the move to um, move data collection from the CDC to HHS? 
The move from the CDC to uh, kind of a non, you know, a, an opaque resource is incredibly troubling, and it is continually undercutting kind of the role and functions of what I would say are dedicated career civil servants who have been for decades now trying to do the right thing, all compounded by the fact that, you know, this this has been an administration which has cut funding in its yearly budgets to those very same agencies. So the move from the CDC, while that has been publicly discovered, I'll be candid, it is only a, just, it is the tip of the iceberg. And I am fearful that even in a potential change of administration, that we will not be able to undo by then hundreds of thousands of potential deaths and millions of cases, not to mention the global impact of, of a United States not being able to kind of participate in a global recovery. Um, can I ask a question about testing, which is why is it taking, we have rapid tests like the Abbott Labs test that I took uh, when I was coming home from taking care of my dad who had COVID. Um, and it worked pretty fast. Why are, are other tests taking so long to get results? What is, what is the, the holdup here and why can't we clear that bottleneck? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to go back to the original comment I made that we do not have a national approach to this. So for example, I just spoke with a friend who's a physician in Miami, Florida. They are now in the hospital looking at a five to seven day turnaround. Why? Because they're out of the reagents. It's just the reagent, Megan, that they're out of. So they've got the swabs and the tubules and the ampules, but they're out of the reagent. Where is the reagent manufactured? Lo and behold, it's it's largely manufactured in China, but procured through an American-based kind of distributor. And why has that distributor not rushed supplies to Florida because that distributor has told the hospital that they are working in conjunction with kind of, quote, federal officials, and federal officials will release those supplies when the states ask for them. So you see now, I mean, there's that, you know, there's a reason they say there's too many cooks in the kitchen, and now there's so many cooks that nobody even knows, like, what we're cooking. And and I think that in short, what we have seen playing out with testing has just been we have not we have not mobilized any sort of national technology infrastructure. I can find out where my mother in Texas is based on her iPhone geolocation, but I can't find out where at a neighboring vicinity I have excess capacity or supplies for testing. So to your point, Megan, I can go in in the DC area today, I can go and get one of those rapid tests, but I can't get the reagents that I'm using and ship them down to Miami because nobody's tracking that. I know that sounds dumb and it's it's because it is. <laughs> What's the uh, is is there any way to have in-person instruction in schools this fall for with some number of students for you know some number of days a week in certain parts of the country? What what is the outlook for that? Yeah, I look. I've got two young kids in school and and working with schools and other people across the country. Let, let me just say one thing at, on the top. There is no. For, for also, we just do not understand enough about this virus in children, period. And so to say that we do 
to be candid is arrogant. We just don't know enough. Having said that, Josh, I think that there are going to be ways to do what I would say hybrid. I certainly think that if you're in one of the 39 states that's experiencing these surges and reverse in trends, you really should be thinking about remote learning in the next four to six weeks, meaning you should not be sending your children in person. And especially as we're doing more testing of younger children and adults, I think that we are going to see even more cases that cause us to pause on in-person learning. But there are going to be regions where you see incredibly low rates and they are consistent with a decrease in growth in some parts. And you could consider some sort of learning. It will look different and it will not be full-time education, which leaves working parents such as myself in a lurch. So that's one issue. But from an educational standpoint, there will be ways to do this smaller class. It's all the things we haven't really done in education, so we'll have to try. It's new. Smaller cohorts, having risk-based, not just thermal testing, because that's only going to help you so much when it's 100 degrees in Arizona, but having some sort of symptom assessment, knowing that children might not have any symptoms and be positive. So we're going to, ha- I would act absolutely enforce either masks or some sort of alternative face shields. And we just need to get comfortable with that. I think adults are less comfortable than children are, and they will adapt. They are incredibly adaptive. So I do think it's possible, but I will say, Josh, I'm troubled every time I talk to a school, whether it's a large public school and a superintendent or a small private school principal, All of them have unanimously said, we have had no contact with our local health departments. They're too busy and it's too hard to create that connection. And without that connection, Josh, I fear that we will end up making things worse. So there's a lot to do. And I, again, it's a failure on Congress. We're not talking a couple billion dollars. We need schools to do everything possible, including securing broadband and access so that if you do move to virtual learning, that it's real and not just this hypothetical that communities of color and low-income communities can never access. Dr. Patel, can you help to put this in context for us just in terms of the the degree of bungled public health policy, not only by a president, but by governors. How do we make sense of this in our own history or um, compared to other countries around the world? Yeah, it's a thank you for that question. And I've been trying to think, how can I bring examples from other countries, but not fall into what we sometimes do, both Democrats and Republicans with American exceptionalism? Like, oh, we're just so different. We can't learn. But I will tell you, other countries have put more, just candidly, they've put more investments into public health. Right now, most public health departments have less than a percent of the state's budget dedicated to the resources. Most of that is usually around um, sexually transmitted disease, contact tracing, tuberculosis, infectious diseases that are not at a pandemic scale. And of course, states are constantly strapped. It doesn't matter what state you are. So I think just to put it into perspective, it's been an under-resourcing in public health compared to other countries, which have also had candidly in the G20 countries, um, a more universal healthcare approach. So I emphasize that just because I do think that this is all bringing out not just our broken public health system, Dorian, but our broken health system. So I would say that it's brought in a lot of those ills that neither the left nor the right have really kind of had success in fixing. Um, And then the third has been, you know, we've been talking about racial disparities. It's been interesting. Um, Other countries have these exact same disparities, Germany, other European countries, UK even, and they've been able to more successfully mobilize resourcing 
in those communities, sometimes by using a little bit of fear-mongering, which I do not agree with, that if we don't handle these communities, it'll spread everywhere. I've seen those campaigns in some of the EU countries, but I do think that they've actually made a point in pandemic preparedness to identify how they will deal with um, higher density neighborhoods, apartment buildings that have a higher proportion of low income people that might not necessarily have time off during the day. And I do think, and I, and I feel like if we do not learn, there is almost an acceptance that the country, the United States has had that deaths every day. I mean, I, I 70,000 plus new cases in the last 24 hours. And I, I just still don't understand what statistic is going to get us to move. And I'm reminded when I talk to my pediatric colleagues, they said, well, if, you know, if Sandy Hook couldn't get us to change gun control policy, what makes you think all these deaths are going to get us to change public health policy? But I, I've got to hold out hope that there's something better and that we can do better, but we must act now. Kavita Patel is a primary care internist and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Kavita, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'll be back with Dorian Warren of the Center for Community Change and Megan McArdle of The Washington Post to talk about Joe Biden's climate plan. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right, and Center, and we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right, and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after, in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abduraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Megan McArdle, columnist of The Washington Post. On the left is Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. Throughout his presidency, Donald Trump has enjoyed higher public approval on his handling of the economy than on his overall job. That trend has persisted even as the economy is cratered due to the coronavirus pandemic. Joe Biden released an economic plan last week that aims to dent the president's advantage on the economy by co-opting some of his themes about promoting manufacturing in the United States. Biden wants an expansive Buy American program that aims to keep sensitive supply chains within the United States, pushing more governments to buy products that are made here. He would tighten rules that require a greater percentage of the components of a product to be American-made in order for it to actually count as American-made under these rules. He wants big public spending on research and development, and he wants labor rules that make it easier for workers to unionize. Also, as we'll discuss in a moment, he has a plan for climate environment that has a big public spending component. Uh, Let's start with the trade part of this. Dorian, as Donald Trump has waged trade wars with China and others, public opinion on trade has shifted toward the most positive public attitudes about free trade in decades. 74% of Americans say to Gallup that foreign trade is mostly an economic opportunity for the U.S. Only 21% call it mostly a threat to the economy. Is Joe Biden right to be embracing trade restrictions and embracing industrial policies that that aim to subsidize production in the U.S. and that restrict what Americans can buy from where? I think he is, to be honest. And there's an interesting um, convergence here on both the left and the right, um, right? So with, with Biden's Buy American focus, we really now have both parties basically abandoning their rhetorical adherence to neoliberal trade policies and globalism. Um, and so the question on the left, at least, is, is for Biden, how serious is he about getting to some kind of a new paradigm? Um, so, you know, that includes in terms of his trade agenda and really taking I think it's interesting. Also, he's he's kind of it's an interesting chess move to put Trump in a box to 
basically argue, especially to Midwestern voters, he hasn't delivered. Um, and and if you want to dig into the what's underneath the trade policy, there are three quick elements. One is reshoring, right? So building and making critical products in America. Two is stockpiling, ensuring we have adequate surge manufacturing capacity, especially in a crisis like now. And then third, which is the one I'm most interested in, um, is to fix trade rules that lift workers' rights and environmental standards around the world. And indeed, um, many on the left have been um, a little hesitant to do this, but we should be leaning into our power as a country to lift standards via our trade policy, um, because we know that if we lift worker standards, it helps American workers. So I think it's a great first step, but it is an interesting convergence that on both the left and the right, there's there's almost an abandonment among at least elites um, around more much more liberal trade policies versus where public opinion is. Uh, Megan, you wrote recently that the pre-Trump elite consensus around free trade had been sort of a strange example of cancel culture, which is to say that your your own pro-trade side of the argument had been too successful at excluding arguments that were critical of trade from the debate over trade. And as a result, some important facts were missed, particularly about how the rise of China was affecting the fortunes of American workers, and it led to the, to the rise of a, an outsider anti-trade politician who became president. So is, is this plan from Biden and the increased emphasis that Dorian notes on both sides about sort of reshoring and trying to to rebuild manufacturing in America, is that a necessary correction from the consensus that you'd been a part of? Well, I think it's probably a necessary concession if uh, the Democrats want to regain some of the white working class voters they've lost. Um, And in that sense, yes, it's necessary. Look, I don't think that the way he's going about it is right. I actually think, you know, I have revised some of my opinions on trade over the last 10 years. I have revised my opinion about the magnitude of the China shock, which I think I didn't predict. I don't think anyone predicted. And what we didn't see was that normally when you have these trade deals, right, it creates some jobs, you lose some jobs, and overall the labor markets adjust. But China had so many low-wage workers that the labor markets didn't adjust fast enough to prevent catastrophe for a lot of American workers. We didn't see that coming. That was something that should make us more humble. Um, Similarly, I think that the pandemic has shown us that we actually need to have some parts of our supply chain here, not because that's economically efficient, it is not, uh, but as a form of insurance. Because what happened when the pandemic hit was it turned out that, uh, you know, the the reports of the death of borders had been (laughs) greatly exaggerated in every country. You know, people got mad at Trump for doing this. Every country did this. Every country said any supplies we have in this country, they're ours. You can't have them until all of our citizens are taken care of. And that was a problem. The United States is big enough to have those critical supply chains here. We should do that. That said, I think we need to acknowledge that the, the kind of we should raise labor standards that helps American workers. Arguably, it does help American workers, but the people it helps American workers at the ex- at the expense of are black and brown people in, in the global south and in Asia. Um, and we should be very clear about what that means. Those countries can only compete with American goods by having lower wages and by having fewer protections for workers. Um, I'm not in favor of that, right? I'm not glad about that circumstance, but that is how they are competitive. And the people taking those jobs, whatever they were doing before is clearly less good for them than that job. We are depriving them of that opportunity. We are potentially depriving countries of the ability to build up their capacity through entering these low wage, low productivity markets like textiles, and then slowly kind of climbing the ladder as China has done, as Vietnam is doing, as Ethiopia may be doing. We're talking about cutting that process off. And 
that is something the left, I think, personally from commitments to universalism and human dignity and so forth, should really think hard about. I want to get to some of those universalism things a little bit later in the show, and we talk about something that uh, Dorian has written for The Nation this week. But uh, to, to talk about some of the sort of nuts and bolts of, of the trade rules, uh, the, what worries me about the sort of thing that Biden has put out here um, is that, you know, people focus on the idea that we will create manufacturing jobs in the United States, and that's positive, but it sort of ignores the role of Americans as consumers and it ignores the role of the American government as a consumer because a lot of these rules restrict what the government can buy. And so, Dorian, to take an example, uh, there's a lot more transit infrastructure around the world elsewhere than there is in the U.S. Cities in Europe and Asia are denser. They have really uh, robust systems for building transit vehicles and that sort of thing. And so when you impose Buy American rules on transit, then you end up with sort of custom versions of things needing to be built for the U.S. in different facilities from than where they're built elsewhere. And that means that our transit projects, it's a reason that they're a lot more expensive than they are in Europe and Asia. And so you get less transit in the U.S. because it ends up being cost prohibitive for a lot of cities to make the investments that would get people out of their cars into public transportation. And that strikes me as one example of the Buy American rules that are intended to serve a progressive purpose around job creation actually undermining another progressive purpose. Well, that's one of several competing values, Josh. Good price. Let's also just point out this is this economic patriotism um, is not only from Biden, right? This has been a move from both the left and the right over the last decade. Um, and, and there's a reckoning that's happening on the left, frankly, right? A lot of this plan from Biden is frankly from Elizabeth Warren's plan. Um, and yes, I do get nervous about protectionist by American moves. Um, on the one hand, I think that has to be balanced with what are the other goals we are trying to achieve that don't simply come down to prices and efficiency. Um, because we have sacrificed by focusing just on those values, that is why we don't have an adequate supply chain or the capacity to manufacture things we need in this current pandemic. Look, I think that if the left is going to give up on universalism, then it should say so, right? I mean, I think that that does represent a kind of radical shift in what the left's rhetoric has been, at least. And I think that, you know, to some extent, the pandemic has has accelerated those shifts that were already somewhat in the works because of Trump and because of other factors. But I think that the kind of wholesale, well, yes, this is going to impoverish a lot of people in Asia and Africa and South America, um, but it's going to mean a 25 cent an hour wage increase for American workers. I think that the left should either say, like, look, our job just isn't to think about those people, um, or then we really really need to actually debate those trade-offs. And that's not really what I think is happening. And for me as a libertarian who aspires to a lot of universal uh, list values and who has seen the right step back from those, which is one reason that I did not support uh, Donald Trump in 2016 and will not support him in 2020, um, you know, I had sort of been holding out hopes for the the left carrying that forward. And what I see instead is that the left is like, great, now we can do Trumpism, but with our stuff instead of his stuff. Do, do you buy that that trade-off, Dorian? I mean, as, as, as Megan notes, the this rise of global trading that has caused a significant amount of upheaval in the United States has also caused significant rises in standard of, of living in a lot of formerly low-income countries that became middle-income countries. It's been a huge driver in the rise of the middle class in China. And so when you impose these standards around the world, I mean, maybe you get countries to to adopt those standards and you get improvements in in living standards there. But a key reason why those standards are supposed to be good for American workers is that by making it more expensive to do business abroad, you induce companies not to move the jobs there at all, to do things in the U.S. or in other high-income countries. I just don't buy it because here's the deal. Um, 
The right has no answer to the very fact that since 1990, six out of 10 jobs that have been created in this country are low-wage jobs and low-hour jobs. They don't have an answer. Um, and so the left is offering proposals that will both create good jobs and revive the middle class in America. And when you lift standards using our power of trade policy around the world, you're also encouraging those other economies to create their own middle classes so that they have their own internal consumer markets. It doesn't have to just be one way. It's not just that, yes, we want to give those folks access to our markets, right? And to producing goods for us. India is building a sizable middle class last time I checked. And they can also lift standards like we did in our own very history that of which there is no argument about. So I'm, I get nervous when all of a sudden we're saying, oh, what other countries have to go through a different process than we did. We can debate the extent to which the United States is responsible for thinking about the effects on people elsewhere in the world. But I don't think that you can just sort of wish away the trade-off, which is that a lot of the middle class and the rest of the world is being built on trading with countries in the United States and in Europe. Um, and that if we take that away, if we close off our borders, and some of that I think is going to happen anyway because of the pandemic, um, but if we shut that down, then I think that we are really talking about stopping a process that has lifted billions of people out of grueling poverty over the last few decades. I think different trade rules can actually make that faster, make that process faster. Yeah, I mean, Dor Dorian, didn't you say at, at the beginning of this conversation that uh, that that one of the effects of increased labor standards around the world is that they protect U.S. workers. Uh, do, doesn't that protection of U.S. workers only, doesn't that only arise if the if the enhanced rules around the world are causing countries to move more jobs here instead of those other countries? No, I don't think it's a, I don't, th I, I, I get nervous about mutually exclusive debates. I actually don't think it's an either or. Um, I, I actually do think um, there is another pathway. Like we've had a similar kind of debate about the minimum wage and the the theories on the right about the minimum wage over the last three decades has been debunked by actually real world examples and empiricism, right? The debate was, oh, there's a trade-off. If you raise wages, people will be unemployed. People will get unemployed. That's actually not true. <laughs> and that has been such the canard for a generation that is just not true. So I'm not buying that there is this theoretical trade-off. I think there is plenty of empirical research to suggest you can actually lift labor standards in other places. We've actually done this in the Dominican Republic. And you can lift labor standards at home for American workers. It can be a win-win. And let's be actually a bit more imaginative instead of just assuming, well, somebody has to suffer for other people to survive. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Joe Biden's climate plan. I've been talking with Megan McArdle, columnist for The Washington Post, and Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. This is Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join.
Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Megan McArdle, columnist at The Washington Post. On the left is Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change. During the primary campaign, the Sunrise Movement gave Joe Biden a sort of comical F-minus for his climate plan. But progressives in the Democratic Party have gotten through the five stages of grief over Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren not winning the nomination. And Joe Biden has done a fair bit to bring progressive policymakers into the tent as he's developed plans, including his new climate plan. And Dorian, I feel like I've seen at least some praise for this plan from the left. It seems like he's co-opted the most appealing parts of the Green New Deal messaging about how investments to improve the environment can be just that, investments that create jobs and strengthen the economy. Well, he's de-emphasized parts of the messaging about how people will have to change their own lives, pay more for energy, give up hamburgers, or what have you. And I guess my question is, does that work? Can you have a climate plan that works to reduce carbon emissions uh, where you don't eventually have to make this pitch around sacrifice and pain because of the changes it will require people to make in their personal lives? Yeah, and I think that is the debate, frankly, on the left between those who've been advocating for a Green New Deal for many years and the elements of that, the good elements of that, that I think your word is apt, right? The co-opting of that, which is, by the way, what we want politicians to do. We want them to co-opt the best ideas. Um, But I think Biden can go further. Um, I actually really look to Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, um, who was, I think, the most climate-focused person running for president in the primaries and had, I think, the most comprehensive climate change plans. And he um, would say that, yeah, there has to be sacrifice, um, that it has to be visionary and there has to be a pathway, right, whether it's um, incentives for new industries, whether it's the procurement power of the federal government that we talked about earlier in terms of helping, you know, whether it's energy efficiency for buildings or, or cars, that's all great stuff. But we actually have to have the cultural reckoning around our behavior as consumers, as workers, um, that I don't think shows up yet in the Biden plan. And I would say, while a lot of the folks further to the Biden's left and the Green New Deal are happy with some elements, that's the part they're not happy about, right? Is like, let's have the conversation about the sacrifices we all have to make if we actually want to save our country and the planet. Megan, it seems to me a lot of these policies, there's some room to frame them either way. Now, in some cases, you you know, you can't get past the fact that certain things are going to be expensive uh, and that even if you're not going to prohibit certain things, it'll be more expensive to drive your giant SUV around or that sort of thing. I'm just wondering, you know, certainly in a campaign, Joe Biden has this advantage that we've seen show, show up on issues over and over that his moderate image allows him to run on ideas that would seem more threatening if they came from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or somebody like that. And I'm just wondering about the extent to which that would actually translate into policymaking. Are there policies that Biden can sell that have real economic costs, at least in the short term, toward the end of, of, of achieving certain climate goals? No. Um, look, I, I see this, by the way, as uh, someone who thinks that climate change is real, that we should be taking strenuous action to avoid it. I buy insurance. I want to insure against something terrible happening to the only climate system we have. Um, so this is not a kind of reflexive, right-leaning, uh, you know, everything about climate change is stupid. Um, but my considered opinion, having watched these debates over and over and over again, is that when the rubber meets the road and you are actually asking people to bear serious personal sacrifice, um, that is a complete non-starter. And you see this over and over again where people in polls will say like, yes, we definitely need to do something really important about climate change. Also, if you raise the gas tax three cents, I will not vote for you, right? I mean, people are completely deluded about what it would actually change to do this. And this is why I think that the focus of any realistic program 
even though my personal preference is for a carbon tax and a carbon tax that is applied to trade, because I think this is a global issue that needs a global solution and we don't just want to export our carbon. Um, I don't think that's ever going to happen. And so instead, what's second best? And I think second best is to some extent doing some of the stuff. I mean, I think Joe Biden's idea that he is, is going to reduce, uh, you know, he's going to replace all of the power plants by 2035. You know, it would take one new nuclear power plant, uh, or a bunch of new wind turbines, um, to go online every two weeks until 2035. That's obviously not going to happen. Um, but that said, you know, I think the, the federal government may play some role in that, but I think the real role that we need to play because we forget the action isn't in the United States anymore. China is now the world's largest emitter and that's going to, that differential is going to keep growing and it's going to bring in other people. It's going to bring in India. It's going to bring in uh, lots of Africa, South America, uh, a lot of Asia, is going to be ramping up their production because they want the stuff we have. They want washing machines and dishwashers and big screen televisions and all the rest of it. And I can't blame them. I love that stuff too. Air conditioning is a huge one for hot countries, right? So what I think we really need to be focusing on is just hog wild spending on research. What we need is actually something that makes the technology to be low carbon more cost effective without subsidies. And this is important because subsidizing it may help us get across some early development hurdles of getting building out infrastructure. But in the long run, it has to be cost effective on its own basis because those countries are not going to impoverish their citizens. They're not going to spend money, government money that could be going to health or, or human welfare um, on doing a more expensive green technology. So what we need to be finding is cheaper green technologies so that those people, um, those countries, when they choose to upscale their lifestyles as I hope they can, uh, they need to be doing it responsibly and we need to make it easy for them to do the right thing. Dorian, I want to talk about a new article that you wrote for The Nation with Sabil Rahman, who's the president of the leftist think tank Demos and who's been a panelist on this show from time to time. You and Sabil are calling for what you're calling the third reconstruction. Uh, so I take your thesis to be the U.S. has gone through two major policy movements that aimed at uprooting structural injustices in society and reallocating power, reconstruction following the defeat of the Confederacy, and then the civil rights movement and its associated great society programs. What would it mean, in your view, to have another reconstruction mm. now? Sort of the basis for this is is really influenced by um, this new book that is coming out next month from um, the author Isabel Wilkerson, simply called Cast. Um, and the argument is is essentially like th th that your skin color or zip code determines your fate in America, period. It always has. That's the dark side of the American dream, right? And cast means stickiness, right? It means stuck in place. It means no mobility. Um, and we have seen challenges to our caste system before. And so I point to these two with Sabil. I point to these two previous moments, Reconstruction after the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. And notice in the article, this is not a focus on individuals, it's not a focus on attitudes and the hearts and minds of Americans. It's actually about rules, institutions, because rules and institutions enable or constrain opportunity and freedom and justice. And so part of what we're saying is we've rewritten the rules of democracy in our economy before, um, and we can do it again. And yes, by the way, while those at the bottom of our caste system would benefit, so particularly black folks in my case, um, what our history also teaches us is that, yes, guess what? Poor whites also benefited from those moments, too. Reconstruction led to the first building of public education institutions in the South. 
it led to the enfranchisement um, of poor black people, but also of poor whites after the civil rights movement, who were also, by the way, disenfranchised by poll taxes, for instance. So that is the vision. It is to get us out of the um, cancel culture of like focus on individuals, frankly, but really to the big, deep structural transformations and the rewriting of the rules that we think our country needs and that arguably we're starting to see happen right now. What does that mean as a practical matter in terms of public policy debates? Because I think a lot of the conversations that we are having about structures uh, that create these inequities uh, in the United States, a lot of them are not necessarily government structures or policy structures. Uh, and I'm not sure that all of them are amenable to change through public policy. So what, what does it mean to, to, take a, you know, a, to take a policy approach to this broad societal phenomenon you're discussing that in, includes lots of non-government actors? Um, well, there's two things. One is that at the policy level, let's just take um, voting rights. We are in the midst of now, what, about a decade and a half of conflict over do we want to expand the franchise to people to vote for people to vote in this country or not? Or do we want to suppress the vote? Um, And we're seeing that happen in state after state after state. So what it would mean is actually expanding the franchise. We did this. We had to amend the Constitution (laughs) to do this several times, by the way. Um, I'm not saying we have to go that far, but we could have a system of um, same-day registration. We could have a system of early voting that's unified across the state so that we don't have 50 different and unequal state systems of voting. We could have, um, as uh, Miles Rappaport and EJ Dion and some others are going to release next week, a system of universal voting where it's actually your civic duty for everybody to vote. Now, by the way, that really scares the right because they understand that the numbers are not on their side and therefore this has been an explicit strategy to suppress the vote because they can't, frankly, win elections outright. Um, If you don't have ideas, (laughs) you gotta cheat. So that would be one example in terms of the rules of the democracy. And then there's the rules of our economy. Um, And there's a whole conversation happening, whether it's around Uh, monopoly power or concentrated economic power in our economy with big, big, big employers who are, by the way, are going to get bigger on the other side of this pandemic because lots of small businesses are going to fail in this moment. Um, So there's a whole revived conversation about anti-monopoly and antitrust. Those would be some rules we'd want to rewrite. And we put on the essay, it's one thing for, say, Walmart to say Black Lives Matter. It's another thing to say, hey, uh, we're not going to mandate that our employees and they're the largest employer of black Americans in the private sector, they don't have to wear a mask. But by the way, consumers do, (laughs) to enter the store. But workers, not so much. So that's the hypocrisy we also wanted to point out. And that gets to what are the corporate policy changes that we might imagine in this period um, that actually provides, in this case, safety to people, whether you're at Walmart or in a meatpacking plant, but also, to go back to our earlier conversation, actually lifts wages when we know that Walmart, for instance, can do much better. Megan, you wrote a column this week saying structural racism is a is a real thing, and that conservatives ought to to understand that and engage with it. What does that mean to you from a public policy perspective? I mean, do you buy this reconstruction frame? What you know, once the once the government acknowledges this as a real and significant problem that shapes American society, and that you know e- actions that are not driven out of any sort of animus toward African Americans still operate within this structure and cause them to be placed at disadvantages for various reasons. Uh, what what does one do about that? I think. That's a really hard question. And, you know, Glenn Lowry, who's an economist um, at Brown, says, points out that, look, even if systemic racism is real, um, 
you have this problem of like fixing it. Thomas Sowell is also is an economist. Both of these are black economists, by the way. They have made this argument that in fact fixing it would require tyranny. And that's the problem is like things like residential segregation. On the one hand, residential segregation, I think I am I'm pretty convinced drives disproportionately bad outcomes uh, for black Americans and has, you know, sort of throughout the the post-slavery history. Um, but how do you fix it? How do you make people not move to a, a school district, a more affluent school district, if they can afford it, right? If you can well, imagine... Isn't, th- isn't there a menu of options, only some of which are command and control? There? I mean, for example, you have a lot of government regulations that that encourage that sort of segregation, including zoning regulations that, you know, that make it illegal to build certain kinds of housing on certain land, and that entrenches uh, the, the, the segregated nature of certain suburbs. So, I mean, maybe you couldn't eliminate it entirely, but it seems like there are steps you could take that would enhance liberty rather than restricting it that would also go, go towards... Yeah, but I think that's really a policy that's that's kind of talking about the problem we don't have anymore, right? What is happening in our cities right now is that, in fact, the suburbs are getting poorer and darker, and the urban centers are getting richer and whiter. Now, the pandemic could reverse that, right? But right now, that's actually where the main action on this stuff is, is that these cities are getting much richer, much whiter. Um, and what does that mean, right? It's not that you can't build multifamily. It, I mean, you can't build anything in San Francisco right now, right? But it's not that that everyone has a two-acre lot and that you can't upzone it. And so the the sort of mandates that that try to override those kinds of very restrictive, and I agree, they perpetuate uh, residential segregation, um, are not actually going to help you all that much with the urban problem that is really developing where you have more and more affluent people moving back into center cities. Um, and I think just, you know, how do you make a company, um, if, if you can imagine a regime that could force a company to somehow compensate for systemic racism, it starts looking a lot like we have strict quotas and then the quotas get really complicated too. And you've seen this in higher education already, right? I think higher education is an institution that at least since the 70s, 80s, has attempted to at least approximate very roughly the representation, especially in sort of elite schools that have a lot of resources to go out and recruit people and so forth, the representation. Um, so Harvard, you know, wants to have uh, a pro- percentage of African-Americans that pr- roughly mirrors, they don't get there, they don't reach that number, but they want to get close to the, the representation in the population. But how did they end up doing that? They ended up doing that by discriminating against Asians so that the white percentage of white students wouldn't fall too far. Right. And that it gets really complicated. Are we going to have rigid quotas in every major company to make sure that everything is representat- representative? I mean, I, I think you can make an argument for that. Right. I, like it's not that you couldn't, from some perspective, make an argument. I think it is an argument that would be very politically hard to advance. Um, I think that in practice, uh, those systems in countries that have tried them really don't work well. Um, and they tend to produce a lot of side issues of various sorts. Um, but I, I think you can make an argument for it. But if you're not going to go there, then you're just kind of left with exhortation. Um, I think that's a real challenge for, you know, Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement were primarily focused on, like, huge, very meaningful government actions that were driving everything else, right? Segregation was was partly private, but it was absolutely reinforced by Jim Crow laws, right? And by striking those down, you could make a me- a really big advance 
um, for the people who are suffering under those laws. And now, look, we should be doing police reform, right? We should we need better policing. Um, I think that we should we should be working to make it easier for people to vote. But should we require people to vote? That seems creepy to me. You know, I think when you start getting into those solutions that can address the subtler problems that I think are real and that America absolutely has to work towards, I think it gets very difficult to describe government policies that are not going to create more unintended side effects um, or that and and also that are kind of within the realm of the politically feasible. We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Megan McArdle, it's your soapbox. Well, in uh, in the early 2000s, John Judas and Roy Tahera uh, published a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which kind of parasitized the minds of Democrats, causing them to think that dem- demography is destiny and that all they had to do was wait for Republicans to die in order to take over the political system and have a, a kind of enduring coalition. That was not actually what the book said. What the book said was the assumption of the book was that they would continue to have a lot of white working class voters uh, who Democrats are now hemorrhaging um, and in fact are hemorrhaging even some working class voters of color compared to earlier elections. Um, so so, you know, Democrats really need to stop thinking something that you still hear that all they have to do is wait for the Republicans to die. What they actually need to do is go out and build an enduring large enough coalition to keep winning elections at both the local and the national level. Dorian Warren, what's on your oh, mind? Oh, can I just say I 100 percent agree with that? Um, but let me start over. <laughs> um, so while the country is in the midst of a debate about free speech and cancel culture, The Supreme Court just canceled the democratic voting rights of one million Floridians who are ex-felons. The backstory is this. In 2018, a supermajority of Florida voters approved the Rights and Restoration Ballot Initiative, overturning a Jim Crow era law that permanently banned ex-felons from voting after their time is served. Yes, you heard me right there. So in response to the threat of returning citizens being able to vote, Florida Republicans enacted some new rules. The new rule says that All ex-felons have to pay off all their fines and fees before they can vote. Here's the problem with that. The state has no idea how much returning citizens actually owe. It's actually a mess because of incompetent governance. This is essentially a 2020 poll tax for returning citizens. The modern Republican Party and the Florida leaders of the Republican Party know they can't win elections fair and square. So they turn to tactics, update it from a previous era to try to hold on to power. Uh, finally, before we go, I want to thank Paul Ruest of Argo Studios in New York. I'm here at Argo right now recording today's show with him, as I've done for most episodes of this show since I took over hosting it in 2015. Paul's history with KCRW is actually a lot longer than mine. He's worked with this station with New York-based hosts and guests on most every show the station has produced going back at least to 1996. That's as far back as we could find. But Argo, like a lot of small businesses, has been a victim of the coronavirus. And it's a shift that is likely to persist for some time. And as a result, Argo is closing. This is a reminder that even as the government has provided huge aid that has been broadly effective at supporting the macro economy, the crisis we're going through is a disaster for the livelihoods of so many American workers and small business owners, a disaster that has been enhanced and prolonged by the incompetent government response to the virus itself. 
It really sucks. Paul and his team here have been excellent partners to our producers and engineers and all of the guests and the panelists on Left, Right, and Center and all the president's lawyers. And that's just us at KCRW. If you're a regular public radio and podcast listener, you've heard a lot of episodes, shows, live events, and interviews because of Paul Ruest. He's a legend in this world. And public radio and podcasting are not going to be the same without Argo. And from a purely selfish perspective, recording at home is an enormous pain in the ass for me and for the production and technology teams at KCRW. And a few months of doing it made me so happy to get back in here in June and so grateful for what Paul has done with us for so many of these years. On behalf of KCRW and our listeners, thank you, Paul, for being a left, right, and center partner. We're all very grateful, and it's been a pleasure to work with you. You'll be the first person we'll call as soon as it is possible to host another live show here in New York. But until then, thank you for everything, and we wish you all the best. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Dorian Warren, Megan McArdle, and Kavita Patel. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 